0: Hey, everybody. This is your host, Matt Castellini, and welcome to Chicago Capital. Well, Ari, thank you so much for joining Chicago Capital. Ari is the CEO of Vazian, which rhymes with Bayesian. Now that everybody is... Honestly, no one's ever going to mess up the pronunciation of your startup after this episode, but uh, thanks for joining us. Of course. Happy to be here. So yeah, I guess to kick things off, I think we'd love to hear kind of your journey and your background to starting this startup and you know how
1: you arrived to where you are today. Sure. So that's a, a very complicated tapestry of a story. So I'll try and give the highlights and sure you that answer from every single guest. So I didn't land in healthcare in a traditional route. I've actually never worked in healthcare before the startup, which is, I think, fairly unusual for a CEO who's starting a doing a startup in healthcare. I actually came from uh, CPG and logistics. I worked at Kraft Heinz doing mac and cheese and ketchup for five years, and then was at Aon for two years before that. So only operations, really. I didn't know anything about the space until I started digging into it. And this all really came about because I was going through my first year at Booth. I felt that I was going to do something like VC, private equity, consulting, or what's the other sexy term that people say a lot, uh, might be big tech, something like that, or Big, Big tech, tech or investment banking, something like that. And I looked at all of this stuff and I, I did explore every single thing and kind of realized that I understood a lot of it, but I wasn't that interested in sitting there and doing this long term, like anything, right? I just spent five years in a, at a Fortune 500 company. I knew that it doesn't really get better. (laughs) No offense to anybody listening to this who doesn't work at a Fortune 500. But at least my experience was it's good. It's great, like stomping ground to really get your chops and learn how to speak with very important people and work on large, large deals. Specifically, I was in the warehousing group. So working on things like that. All the experience translated into startup actually, because a lot of what we were doing was figuring out where is the, like we want to reduce X KPI by 10%. You figure out how to do that. Yeah. And that's very translatable into startup because it's very much, I need to accomplish X. I have no guidelines for understanding of this concept, even I'm just going to go figure it out. Start with Google. I think entrepreneur like that's probably a really underrated tool that nobody talks about in the the startup toolkit is freaking Google. Like, no, you know what I mean? Like it used to be in like, if you watch something like Stranger Things, like they go to the library to do research, that's a thing of the past. And like 20 years ago, that wasn't possible to just go. Well, I need to know about anything and so i definitely went on a tangent there but long story short a third of the way through my booth career was like i really want to do something different started taking entrepreneurial classes really enjoyed it and then my father actually came to me with a a patent that he had just filed uh, my father's brilliant guy we can get into that later if you want but i'm not gonna bore you with the details for now and he's a very smart scientist and basically patented this new methodology of how do we diagnose disease using Bayesian method- methods that were developed for probabilistic genotyping and DNA forensics. And the side, because it's pure math and science, it translates from DNA to healthcare. That's really all you need to know. And it is a new novel method and it's method, not code, not source code, no, it's actually patentable, at least under the current policies of the U.S. And so he came to me with it. He was like, hey, I invented this. Basically, I don't really want to deal with starting up a company. He's already done that once. And he was like, if you want to take the business side and figure out something to do with this, I think that could be cool. And so that's what I did. I started testing it out in all sorts of classes. First one was shout out to Greg Bunch, New Venture Challenge. That's the first time I ever brought my company in front of anybody. And I went from talking about it in hushed circles and study halls to uh, talking, bringing it to like the attention of 70 people in this class, which was... Probably the most terrifying thing I've done, just because it's the first time I was bearing my soul and dreams and who I am as a person to a large number of classmates who had never heard my name probably before. Well, they participated in class, but you know what I mean. And since then, we've gone through all the different Polsky and Booth tracks, done Polsky Accelerator, did the I-Core. I actually won a tide for best pitch at the collaboratorium, which got us an I-Corps grant from there to the uh, new venture challenge. Polsky accelerator didn't win new venture challenge. I'm sure you get that a lot on your, on your podcast and even more so people founder saying, and looking back, we really, really did not deserve to win. It was not a, <laughs> it was, yeah, you don't really know you don't know what you don't know until looking back six months later, like, oh, wow, shit. Like we had no business. We, we had no business even <laughs> pitching to people at that point, but to each their own. Yeah. And so now I just graduated. We are, I'm focusing on this full time. We just brought on a second a third co-founder outside of me and my father, former res- chief resident of the ER at U Chicago, now working as an attending down in Atlanta. He's going to be the physician to my business acumen and my father's science, uh, scientist role. And we are excited to be also beginning at an incubator in Chicago. So matter, it's the, one of the top Midwest, um, life sciences and healthcare incubators. At least in this geography, and uh, we actually—I'm moving my desk in later today. Actually, so <laughs> it's uh, been an exciting time. I hope that I covered everything. <laughs> that,
0: I you know. mean, there's just so much to pull there. First off, yeah. working on both mac and cheese and ketchup at the exact same time—I <laughs> uh, I feel like I need to dive into that. Yeah. It seems like a conflict of interest. Well, I,
1: I worked—I worked on everything, just for the record, because I was logistics. So my role was honestly it's looking back kind of interesting, but at the time it just felt like hell, no no disrespect to the role I knew what I was getting into, but just to give you high level, I was on the inventory execution team, which basically meant executing on inventory if something needs to happen. like your inventory moves from point A to point B, anything physically, systematically, administratively, financially even like my team was responsible for a lot of that. The team that I personally managed we were responsible for what's called hold and release, which is uh, basically do you hold a release product? And it spans everything from, again, lots of warehouse strategy projects and process improvements all the way to my team was the one that handled all the recalls at at Kraft Heinz. And I have a lot of stories that I'm probably not actually legally allowed to talk about (laughs) some crazy, crazy stuff that was like going through the Walmart distributor and us getting on the phone with them and going, no, 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 stop that. And a lot of three, and we have this thing called being on call, which is at 3am. If I was on call, I'd get a call from like the director of something and the director of let's go with seasoning or director of shake and bake. They go, a quality director and they go, okay, there's a Listeria possibility in this. We need you to hold this entire run, go figure out where it is in the country and lock it all down. That was my job for, Three years. And I took on a lot more during that time. I actually went into another managerial role while keeping the responsibilities from that. But uh, a lot of hectic nights and a lot of people swearing in. We joke and say a lot of people swearing in Brazilian because it's a Brazilian company. But uh, it's a, a very interesting time.
0: So I feel like you're about to cause a mass walkout within Kraft Heinz, I feel like, at the release of this episode. We're not going to have any catch-up in the Midwest after this, but... That would um, be a
1: devastating loss. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I feel like the on-call portion of it at least gave you a little bit of sympathy for you know the field in which you're now trying to you know yeah. sell this sell this technology and on that topic i guess i'm curious i mean i have so many questions about the development of it but you know for where it is today and where you are all looking to take it what are the major use cases what are the major sort of areas of you know diagnosis in the medical field that you're hoping to use this prototype for
1: yeah absolutely so we are we're saying our our catchphrase is ai in the er doesn't really exist right now. There have been 140 plus AI, AI algorithms that have been approved by the FDA. I think it's like less than there are four, four that I know of that were ER related, not a single one doing anything that's actually true diagnosis or like risk stratification of a diagnosis of a differential. We are focused... So we're focusing on the ER is serendipitously because of the physician, Danny, that I met, Dr. Cillian, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, he he was in the ER at UChicago and kind of led us down the path of these are all the problems that I face. What can we use this tech to help me with? And so as of right now, our prototype diagnosis, chest pain in the ER. And the whole concept of it is about 8 million Americans go to the ER every year with chest pain. Of them, about half get admitted based on current best practices and standard of care. And of those over 50% that are admitted, less than 6% actually needed to be admitted to the hospital. And so the whole point of this, at least our angle, is we are trying to reduce admissions into hospitals and all the value-based care stats and stuff that goes along with that.
0: Because the problem is it's creating like a, like you were talking about the very beginning, you know, finding KPIs of any given industry and helping sort of, exactly, you know, and, yeah. and for them, it's creating this bottleneck, I would imagine of resources that get allocated towards these cases that actually don't need, you know, attending physicians or nurses or, or people to be sort of allocated towards those people who might just have Harper.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so the way that exactly right, the way that the standard of care is right now. There's this thing called the Heart Score, and it's a very simple risk stratification. My brother could use it. I mean, well, my brother's a really smart guy. Actually, a, a three-year-old I could use it. Yeah, I could anybody, use it. anybody could. There can, you go. Basically, it asks questions like, on a scale of zero to two, are they a smoker? Do they have, like, are they obese? Does the doctor think they have any problems? And so because of this, what really was a focal point for us and like a turning point in us realizing this was the problem to go after through I-Corps. And I-Corps taught me I just need to sit there and listen to people for hours. And so I listened to a lot of doctors. And there was this one doctor I connected with out of Albert Einstein in New York who said that I in like I quote, he's like, I fucking hate the heart score. The heart score makes me admit every single one of my patients because it considers whether they smoke and whether they're overweight. And once you get to like a two on the heart score, you are out of uh, six different variables, scale of zero to two for each of them. If you at least hit at least the two, I think it is, don't quote me on that. You have to admit them and he was like because of this every single one of my patients gets admitted because the demographic of my hospital and like my albert einstein location is lifetime smokers who are majority of which are obese and it's just a waste of resources it's a waste of my time it's a waste of their time and then chest pain is actually also the number one the most expensive condition coming out of the er for healthcare insurers right it's a at least average of 10 to $12 billion every year goes to those claims. And so if you think about it, the healthcare insurers are paying for over 50% of these people being admitted and yet less than 5% actually needed to be. And that's that's our our piece of the pie that we're going after.
0: So it's like a win, 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 really, if this could be adopted at scale and really do what it is you're all hoping it can do, you're, you're saving the healthcare insurers money, you're saving mm-hmm. the doctor's time, and you're saving the patients, I guess, needless anxiety or needless time and cost spent in the ER.
1: Yeah, so definitely that. However, it's healthcare and healthcare is like 7D chess. It's, it's super complex. It's much different from getting things from point A to point B in logistics, from what I've seen. And you mentioned the customer, you mentioned the doctor, you also mentioned the payer, but the problem is healthcare. So there's a lot of other factors involved, including the hospital. And the problem is how does the hospital make their money? Completely on volume, right? And so for us to reduce admissions, is actually not the best thing for them. And so that's why we're specifically initially targeting healthcare insurers who also act as providers, right? Just a, a stat to throw out there a fact is, United Health Group is the largest healthcare insurer in the country. They're also the largest employer of physicians in the country. Meaning that there are these companies out there, these healthcare insurers who are now buying up hospitals who actually have the cost incentives aligned to reduce admissions as opposed to a pure for profit hospital probably would be less interested in what we're doing right now.
0: That makes total sense. Also, shout out United Healthcare. They are my insurance carrier. So, you know, <laughs> it's probably going to work. Health
1: insurance still for another month. So. There you go.
0: Exactly. I'm about to re up. Yeah. That's going to hurt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because it's AI related, I, I'm curious about sort of the development of, I'm assuming it's like machine learning, supervised learning. What was like the data set that you guys used? Did you have sort of like training data where you could see? The symptoms and then the outcomes and you've just over time just built up sort of a, a really accurate prediction algorithm for for what is the actual you know outcome that this person is most likely to see based on their symptoms or how did that data set? Where did you find the data? How did you go about building the product with the data? Just curious about all that.
1: Yeah. So the cool thing about this, and this is way over, this is more minority report shit. So I can't, I understand at a high level, I was a math major in college, but that only helps so much when you're talking about like past graduate level math and computer science. But the thing we, we model Danny's brain is basically what happened. So through conversation, my father met with uh, Dr. Cillian, six or seven times and started to figure out okay when a patient comes in what are the different levers that get pulled for you to admit or not and decide on what their differential diagnosis is and that was our starting point point. and so we modeled that using these bayesian methodologies that you could like say are equivalent to machine learning using predictive analytics so it is that it's just different than people are normally used to the math behind it but it's the same idea so it's machine learning it's ai in that way but it's statistically learning and just getting better as we get more data and the data that we started with were actually cases provided by a few er physicians at the university of chicago who are just interested in the products they didn't it was all very very like we weren't working with university of chicago at the time but physicians can use their own cases for personal research and so that was our our way in to start gathering chest pain patients and basically it was and we're still doing this for the record where we only recently actually started bringing on other physicians Um, but right now we're just gathering interesting cases and common cases and we want to see what is a population chest pain patients actually look like when we have at least a thousand which is kind of our one of our short term prototype
0: goals. First, my brother's gonna love this episode. The first word he taught his kid how to say was Bayesian economics. So which I don't even yeah (laughs) that which is a whole nother whole nother topic for another podcast. But yeah, I I think you you and your dad are not the only ones who have a father son relationship related back to (laughs) Bayesian economics. I'm curious about, you know, it's healthcare. So I guess, I guess this question probably comes up every day is kind of the regulatory challenges and hurdles that, that you guys have to go through. You know, does this have to be HIPAA compliant? You know, those types of considerations. How are you thinking about that?
1: Yeah, we're thinking about it to an extent. The policy has changed a lot recently. Honestly, with the administration change, it actually, a lot of things shifted. Some in favor, some worse. That's just how it always goes. So right now, the headwinds and tailwinds are kind of a bit flux, but the best tailwinds that are happening right now are that the FDA is starting to build up its team of people who will be able to actually analyze these software as a medical device products, right? Like, so like three years ago, they accepted the first application and landed it all the way through of a product that helped diagnose debilitating retinal degeneration. I think based off of diabetes. Don't hold me to that yet again. It's been a while. Retinal something or other, diabetic retinopathy. There it is. And since then, they've been approving them. But what happened is, I want to say maybe a year, less than even, they kind of pulled the brakes. Pushed the brakes down on it and went, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're like, we're letting through all these technologies and we don't actually know a lot of what's going on with them. We're just kind of, and I don't, I can't speak to all those other groups, but it makes, it makes a lot of sense. So I think they've kind of put a hold, a hiatus on these like approvals right now, but it's because they're really ramping up so that they can do it fast, right? They're trying to basically adapt the entire FDA into being able to adapt to big tech and big healthcare with its big tech incorporated in of being able to move fast when there are multiple iterations in a week for a new AI technology. I think that's their goal. I don't know when they're going to get there, but that's the major major tailwind for us anyway. And then you asked about HIPAA the rules are getting more and more lax, I think, because people are realizing that the only way that true innovation is going to happen is if you let people have access to the data. And But the good news is there's a lot of work in terms of de-identifying and making sure that even though that data is accessible to a lot more groups, companies, people, the patients are still protected and they, their identity is still not in jeopardy. So, for example, even with physicians we're working with, we just want their zip code and like the institution they work at. We're trying, like, we're 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 very big on anonymity at our company. So,
0: no, I think that makes total sense, and that's, I mean, it kind of to me seems like that was the solution all along is to just you know find a way to make that data anonymous, and you know, well, it's it's good at least that that's sort of that's changing over time. I think. Another question that's been on the top of my mind is your revenue model. You know, how does it work? Are you guys going to sort of do it by device? Are you going to do a subscription fee? How are you going to monetize this solution in the future?
1: Yeah. So that is a, also a complicated question. And I think the first person to truly figure that the first company to really figure that out could be the next Google, but of healthcare, seriously, because, the stars have not aligned yet the policy is working towards it technology is working towards and like in this direction too but i don't think any startup or established company that was a startup even like eight or nine years ago most i feel like most of them unless there's an actual physical product or they found another way to monetize what they're doing that's less to do with the specific ai it's a lot it's a lot harder to monetize an algorithm right now they're are a lot of policies being put into place that actually could potentially reimburse algorithms every time they're run, the same way that medical devices, right now, every time a medical device is used, there's reimbursement for that run. There's a lot of policy that's been proposed, but I haven't seen anything concrete outside of for very specific instances like the diabetic retinopathy company. Now they get reimbursed. I think it's like 32 or $33. There's a range, but it's like 30 to $50 per run and i think that's the direction we're going for now but things could change literally in a moment as i've learned because i follow this policy pretty intently and it changes every month
0: if it does change if you do sort of crack the monetization question what do you see as the you know total addressable market size of this opportunity how big do you think this could be at scale
1: i think it's potential to be as big as big tech is now, honestly, right? It's healthcare is one of the last strongholds of not, not co- like joining the modern world, right? Like everyone's shocked to learn how much of hospital, how much hospitals depend on paper, for example, just for their patients. Cause so many hospitals, it's just, it's a very, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff that hasn't caught up with us. And um, I think that's why you're seeing all these big tech companies venture right now, because they see that there's this opportunity, right? The big five Amazon, Microsoft, like uh, Amazon um, is going into prescription pill delivery, right? Google is partnering with hospitals all over the US on these like 10 year deals of we get access to your data and help you develop your tools. I'll just throw one more out there and Microsoft is working on things like they acquire nuance, which is a it helps company it helps doctors chart. By speaking instead of having to spend their time at their desk typing things up, Um, that's a very crude way of putting what they do. But basically, all these big tech companies are investing in areas that they see as they are kind of they're already halfway there, so they're playing to their strengths. And I I think that they're realizing now, though, with things like Watson imploding that uh it's not as easy as they they can approach it the way they did startup how okay we're just going to do multiple iterations and every time there's a bug we can we'll fix it but just go live because that's not how healthcare works there's so much more policy around it and so i think they're trying to they're starting to go back into their lanes and i think that's the opportunity for the potential google of healthcare is somebody with the know-how and their core being healthcare tech will land that spot but i i really do think it's limitless it's it's healthcare is already a top five like it's like a top five industry in the us and you couple that with tech which is like the second or something like that and it's huge
0: it's it's something we talked about in my i took a class on artificial intelligence this year and uh, i'm curious about your thoughts on this but It's honestly a topic we could go down for a whole hour of an episode, but what are some of your top reasons you think the healthcare industry has been such a laggard with innovation and with technology adoption? Like you mentioned, so much of it is still done on paper. I I think it's fascinating, like some industries and education is another one that's taken Hmm. a really long time to adapt massive innovation. And, you know, SaaS companies selling into educational institutions are the first ones to say how long of a sales cycle it is, how hard Hmm. it is to get buy-in, And so I'm just curious, I mean, any insights you might have from your time in space about what it is that's at the crux of it that's been causing such a slow march to innovation?
1: So to an extent, I think the HIPAA protection of patients played its role well, but maybe a little too well. And that stifled innovation a little bit. I could get skewered for saying that by some people, but I mean, it's kind of true. And now that they're finally laxing the policy, that's why we're seeing all these companies breakthrough. And I think a lot of that also had to do with, we're just the timeliness, right? COVID happened. All of a sudden healthcare is what one of the only things everybody's thinking about and knows is a sure thing. And so we're, I think we're finally seeing for the first time, these policies that actually are in favor of healthcare and AI to an extent, not necessarily just, it's not like a, a wild west situation, but a, okay, you now have the go ahead to actually try things out. And also I just i don't think the tech was there as well as doctors weren't really ready and all the public wasn't ready right took something like covid and years of years of physicians like growing up with ai to actually accept it so something i noticed during my Corps and after was that there was kind of a range for doctors if they were above the age of 35 36 they were immediately a little bit more hesitant about AI and machine learning and because that's just I think they they came a little before the generation that grew up which is being like oh yeah everything's automated everything's on my phone it's all apps and so you'll talk if you talk to doctors who are under that threshold they're just like, yeah, I came into the hospital expecting to see what I see in like ER and Grey's Anatomy and things like that, and none of those. It's it's like the whole the whole joke with CSI, just enhance, 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 and how it's not actually realistic. It's the same with healthcare. It's not okay, like echo, like. Dr. Alexa, please tell me what this person has. No, it's like at the end of the week, if the guy had time, if the physician has time to chart, they'll sit there for six hours up there on their off day charting everything uh, on paper because their system is in a rural area that doesn't have the money to afford an automated charting system. And so all the, for all these reasons, tech's been uh, big tech's been out of healthcare. So...
0: I forgot to ask this, but would you categorize your solution as is like a human in the loop solution for AI? You know, I know there's some diagnostic tools that look at X-rays and and they just rank order, oh, probability that this could mean, you know, some type of disease based on what the the X-ray says. But there's always a human, another physician, to sort of check the machine's work and, and double check it. Would you call your solution also human in the loop?
1: Yeah, and so the analogy that I like to use is a stethoscope. We're, we're just a very, very fancy stethoscope. If you think about it, a stethoscope can't diagnose, but it can help with diagnosis. And even though we're providing back actually understandable results that a doctor can use and know where the output came from, right? That's what's unusual about our, our technology is that everything can be traced back to, to why, like, why is there, why, why is this the error rate and why is this what we're predicting based on all these symptoms and our tech actually allows you to click into all the different symptoms and be able to see what were the Bayesian, what was the math going on behind this. And we know that physicians are able to understand this level of math. Like they had, they have to, in order to get into medical school. Right. So like at least at a high level,
0: Yeah, no, I think that makes total sense. I think for for you guys looking out into the next six, 12 months, what's kind of the product roadmap? What are some of the major initiatives you're looking to hit?
1: Sure. So, the end goal right now, we have a bunch of different objectives and deadlines, but it all really leads to a pilot program that is the like, right, getting from zero to one for a healthcare startup pilot program is your one, right? Until you get that unless you're being used by like the everyday consumer or something like that, you need a pilot program. It's just not possible. Or you're a massive corporation that doesn't need a pilot program cuz you can do it internally. And so that was part of the reason we joined Matter actually is Matter is renowned for helping partners, startups with the correct partner to then help them implement a pilot program. And so what Matter will do is they'll let's say that I'm just going to make this up, but advocate Aurora comes to them and they're one of their partners and goes, we're looking for a startup that is working in the cardiology space. And Matter goes and looks at all of their startups. And let's say there are like 20 in the cardiology space, they send all those over to Advocate Aurora. Advocate Aurora looks at all of them and goes, We like these five. We'd like to meet them. And then of those five, they keep meeting, they keep meeting, they keep deciding. And then finally they pick a winner of, okay, for our innovation in cardiology, we want to work with this, like this company because they like they want. Basically. And again, another crude descriptor. And I know there's a lot more nuance to what goes on than that, but at a high level, that's that like that is the end all be-all for us. Is how do we get to a pilot program with a healthcare insurer that is excited about implementing this at their for their providers so that they are saving money on what is called total cost of care, which is the lifetime value of a healthcare insurance customer. So
0: and then from a funding perspective, you know, what's what's your guys' funding appetite look like right now? You know, are you fundraising in the future, et cetera, et cetera?
1: Yeah, so we we've been very fortunate in that between bootstrapping and funds earned through booth, not booth, but a uh, Polsky programming like the Polsky Accelerator, and we were recently awarded a, a Polsky Founders Fund Fellowship. Between those, we haven't really had a need to fundraise. We're actually developing our, our website again right now. It's the first money we've actually spent this entire process out of that funding, So, which I think makes a good story at least. Uh, we're like two and a half years in and I'm finally using some safe equity money. The good thing about life sciences and healthcare is that if what you're doing is innovative enough, which we truly believe it is, we've gotten the feedback that quite a bit of it is, we can fundraise by... Not fundraising, and instead applying to government grants and going after things like SBIRs. So that's kind of what we're in the throes of right now is figuring out what are the best SBIRs to apply for, and how do we get to even a phase one SBIR is 150000 dollars. That's not including the overhead bonus. And Illinois recently passed legislation legislation saying that up to um, that any life sciences or healthcare company being awarded an SBIR should be provided with a 50k extra excess grant provided by Illinois in order to facilitate more innovation. So there's like all these, and like America wants more innovation. America wants to like, the US government has been really good at pushing for a lot more change recently in terms of technology. And yeah, that's, that's it.
0: (laughs) And then I have to ask final question. I mean, it's a two parter. What's it been like to co-found a company with your dad, and what's it been like to do so here in
1: Chicago? <laughs> so I, I'll be t- totally honest. The first two years <laughs> of me doing this with my father, it was very weird. Um, not not working with him. We actually worked together extremely well. We're, like get along super well. I don't think if we had started this when I was a teenager or even in college, it would have gotten nearly as well considering some of the arguments that erupted over things like calculus homework back in high school. But uh, it's interesting. One of the harder things to adjust to is in my emails and roll-ups and notes and all that and important applications and documents referring to my father as Dr. Perlin instead of dad which I've been known to do on even things like the SBIR application going dad, like, oh yeah, dad got this many grants and published this. Oh, nope, nope. Dr. Perlin, Dr. Perlin. So there's been that. And then it's also, I think it drives my family crazy to an extent, not, not in a good crazy, but they're like, oh my God, they're just always talking about this. And so in a way it's actually been, really amazing. It's probably the closest I've ever been to my father. We talk every day because he's one of my co-founders. And there's always like, we we get we get our business done. We spend 75% of the time talking on fasian But then it means that I get that 25% of, I know what's going on in his life. He knows what's going on in mine. He knows that I'm trying to generate the willpower to actually pick up my guitar again. I know that... All he wants to do is talk about how he's learning drums and it's a, it's a good give and take. It's, it's cool. He's become one of my best friends in the process of this. So, yeah, but I will say having meetings with professors and start opening your pitch with, so there's this thing me and my dad are doing like it, uh, it takes a a while to get comfortable.
0: <laughs> That's amazing, and honestly, it sounds yeah. like you guys are on your way to starting a father-son band. Even if uh, you know whatever the future of the startup may be, at least you guys got that in the back pocket.
1: The idea um, is been floated around quite a bit. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, just you know, what has it been like? You've been around Chicago now for a while, and just curious about your thoughts on being a startup founder here in Shy City.
1: Oh yeah, it's been it's been incredible. Again, didn't know anything about startup really going into this, and now I see how amazing Chicago is, especially in the sector that I'm in, at least in terms of healthcare and life sciences there's a huge presence here. I also know cannabis plug for that. I know can we've been called like the innovative Silicon Valley of cannabis in the U S or something like that, but cannabis and life sciences and healthcare were crushing. And I can see the support there, right? Like just going to matter this week for the first time and speaking with the people there. And then I had like a meeting with their venture team of like, what are my objectives? And it's just a whole different ball game of, we know exactly what you're going through. We've had Hundreds of companies go through these experiences in Chicago, and we are here for you in every way. And it's nice. I'm, I'm a huge proponent. I mean, I moved to Chicago of my own volition. I wanted to. I had no other reason except that I wanted to. I think that may make me have some rose-tinted glasses, but I really do love this city, and I think it's a great place for healthcare startups. All
0: right. Thank you so much for joining Chicago Capital. This has been sure. a blast. I think you have successfully distilled this massive and complex problem for my brain, which is a feat <laughs> in its own right. And you know, we wish you guys nothing but the best as you continue to build this out. And I'm sure there's some really exciting stuff ahead of you in uh, 2021 and 2022. But
1: thank you so much for hopping on. Yeah, thank you so much. And big fan of the show. So. Awesome! We love to hear that. You're invited back. There you go. All right, all right. I'll come back in a year. So. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Have our series receive funding or something like that.
0: Beautiful, yeah. beautiful. All right, all right. Take
1: care. All right, thank you.
0: If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy, designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group and please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.